You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, even without throwing, that's the end of round two. We'll have one more round. It will be slightly more difficult, slightly. But for the time being, we're going to talk, do some Q&A. I'm sure you all know since you bought it, that uh, Chuck's here to talk about his latest book. It's a tell-all, 100% true, verified celebrity biography called Love Slave. It's the story of his arranged marriage at the age of 16 to an aging Lillian Hellman, who dominated him sexually for more than 25 years, <laughs> held him in a dungeon, and made him write some really wonderful books. <laughs> So, Chuck, you know, one of the things that I liked about this book was this sense of um, layering that we have. There's a term, uh, it's used in painting. When somebody starts to paint a canvas, we always see the final image, but we don't know what happens underneath. And sometimes somebody will start to paint one thing and then say, oh, I don't want to paint a clown, I want to paint a doctor's office. And they'll paint a doctor's office over a clown. But what's underneath bubbles up somehow and influences what's happening. And I think that happens a lot in this novel. It's called Pentimento, and it's a book by Lillian Hellman, too. Her so-called biography. One of her of <laughs> talk, talk about how what's underneath this book bubbles up and creates that kind of tension, how you create that, the, the opposing forces that unite in this book and drive it forward. You know, in a way, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's always kind of a, uh, every book is a, uh, is a way of fooling yourself into saying things or, or dealing with things that you wouldn't consciously deal with. It's kind of making a game out of it so that you fool your, yourself into telling a truth that you're kind of shocked by, that you're not even fully aware of yourself. And, uh, and initially, the book was, was started in just one weekend when I was in New York promoting the, the Choke movie with Sam Rockwell. And uh, we were in the Fox News Corporation headquarters eating these little boxed lunches. And Sam was talking about making the Jesse James movie with Brad Pitt. And at one point, he stopped himself mid-sandwich and he, and he got very self-conscious. And he said, Christ, just listen to me. All I say is, Blah, 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 Brad Pitt. Blah, 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 Brad Pitt. And he said, it sounds like I have a kind of name-dropping form of Tourette syndrome. <laughs> and he nailed it so perfectly that that was one genesis. And that same weekend, I was in a cab with a bunch of publishing people. And they were talking about any number of biographies that they have already typeset, ready to go to press, ready to get covers, just waiting for different celebrities to die and that they could get these into bookstores within seven days of the actual death. And so there's, 
all of these books sitting out there, just waiting for people to die. And they also talked a great deal about Lillian Hellman in an unflattering way. And this whole time, and this was really the excruciating part, this is so fucked. I have to go to these showings of the choked movie, which I thought turned out really well. But I have to sit there in this comedy about a man sitting bedside as his mother dies. And in my real life, I have to fly back to Portland where my mother is dying. And I have to sit at her bedside, which is not a comedy. And so I have to go publicly and praise this thing that seems very funny. And then I have to go back to almost identical circumstances in my real life and alternate this reality with this sort of fictional comic sequence. And it is so hard to sit there and watch this without crying. And everybody is laughing and I'm just gritting my teeth trying not to cry because so many thousands of miles away my mother is in, is in a hospital bed dying. And at the same time I'm writing Tell All, which is about someone who cares for this elderly woman it, toward the end of her life because I'm writing a lot of that book in my mother's house as I'm taking care of her as she dies. So, in a way, I'm tricking myself into dealing with all of these issues that are so heavy and so horrible I can't be with them in a literal way. I have to turn them into something. And I, ideally, I have to turn them into something kind of funny. One of the things that I, I liked about this book was this observation that you made. We all think that we kind of come whole into this world, that we're ourselves, but the way these characters create their, themselves is by pulling together different pieces of people that, that you make us realize that we're all kind of puzzles that we put together ourselves. You know, and I said something to that effect, I think, in Invisible Monsters, where I said, we are, none of us are fully original, we're all uh, kind of an anthology, small pieces of other people. And Fitzgerald had said that personality is a, is a successful series of, of gestures. And in a way, as we're growing up, we see fit things that we, we see in other people that we find really appealing. And so we'll pick up a kind of a way of sitting or a mannerism or an expression or a nervous tick that we find very appealing and compelling in other people. And so in a way, the world sort of forms this, this buffet of different ways of behaving. And we pick and choose this, you know, ultimately the collage that we become. And in a way, that was all worked into tell-all. You know, this novel is just filled with a, a gallery of, you know, small characters who, at the time when they were, when they were in the media, they were just incredibly world famous and probably well known to, to the people of the world. Many of them are forgotten now. And, and I'd like you to talk about, you know, some creating these characters, selecting them, and also uh, some of the quotes that, you've, that you have from these people. I mean, how much of this came out of reality and how much of it came out of uh, the many pieces of Chuck Palahniuk? You know, that's, a, that's an advantage of books. And I always think if I'm going to write books, I want to take advantage of the very few things that books can do that movies cannot do. And when you're writing a book, you can write Cary Grant in as a fictionalized character, and you can make Cary Grant stand on his head, and you can make Cary Grant dance around naked, 
and you can make Lillian Hellman do anything you want. She is your bitch slave zombie. <laughs> and all the dead people, no matter how famous they were, they're your bitch slave zombie Frankensteins, and you can do whatever you want with them, because they're dead and they can't sue you. <laughs> and movies can't do that. If movies have to want to use Cary Grant, use his image, they would get so sued into the ground. So it's one thing that books can do that movies can't do. And so I wanted to, uh, in a way, do this, this book that fictionalized hundreds and hundreds of famous people as characters because it's one of the few advantages that books still have. You know, uh, one of the things I loved about this book was the, the way you use the bold face in the book. As we scan the page, these names leap off to us. And after a while, I realized that it, it makes them equivalent. So, so we've got Cary Grant equivalent with styrofoam. And in a way, both things are a product. Both things are very clearly designed, marketed, successful, universally kind of recognized product. You don't recognize Archie Leach as a product, but Archie Leach became Cary Grant after adopting a very successful marketing and way of being. You know, uh, this, this movie comes out of, or this book has, it's uh, it written like a movie. You write it like a movie. So it, you give us film directions. It reads like a movie. You're preemptively uh, striking at movies. Is this maybe a result of your, you know, uh, the adaptations of your movies? Of my books? Yeah, of your books? Yeah, into movies. <laughs> No, you know, <laughs> if anything, it was a, a lot of times you can just look the way things are. Movies have used the language of novels for a hundred years to, to tell the stories of movies. You know, the movie that starts long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, in Star Wars, and it's, isn't it like book one or chapter one, something like that at the beginning? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The yeah. whole thing starts with a completely novelistic device, a long series of written narrative. So books, are, books have always used the devices of, movies have always used the devices of books. And so I thought it would be interesting that now we're sophisticated enough to recognize the language of movies, like eyeline match and, you know, pan and dissolve, things like that. Um, establishing shot that the book should be able to do the same thing and start to use the language of movies and that's what I wanted to do here. Now um, what, this story, book has a, a, a really great narrator who, who tell uh, Hazy so talk about creating this narrator who is buries her story there's there's a, a, a very nice minimalistic plot here but it's, it's layered and layered beneath this Tourette's syndrome of celebrity Tourette's. And that is so much of, of what fiction is. It is a, a kind of delayed, really drawn out discovery process. You go, I'm saying rhetorically, but you go to see a stripper and it's no need to be rhetorical. rhetorical. <laughs> and the stripper, you know basically what the stripper is going to look like once she's naked. And she does not walk out and drop her pants and say, this is my vagina, any questions? <laughs> it's a long, drawn-out reveal. 
a long drawn out discovery process that, ha that creates ongoing tension before the final reveal. Because the reveal itself is not where the tension lies. It's in, it's in the discovery process, feeling like you're solving this big, big problem. And once the problem is solved, it's got to get off the stage really fast because there's, there's no tension left. Now, you know, this is uh, arguably your first uh, historical novel. It is. I think it's the first novel I've written that's kind of based in the past, so people can't sue me. <laughs> well, what made you decide to, to write a historical novel? Was just, the, uh, are you just avoiding a lawsuit? Well, you know, in a way, it's a political novel because, like most of my books, it's about uh, how people acquire power. And in this case, they acquire power through creating possibly fictional associations with more powerful people by linking themselves to people with a greater status, which is, I think, the main purpose of name dropping, is that you take somebody with a recognized status and you create this suggested association with them. And that's kind of a political story. It's a political novel, but politics is not very sexy. So you make it a political novel told through entertainment, through celebrities, and it makes it much more appealing and accessible. Uh, but it's still really a novel about acquiring and preserving power. Wow, that's an interesting observation. You know, you, you take uh, your, your, your novels um, are so different from one another. It, it seems to, to me that if we took your name away and just read plot descriptions of every novel, we would never guess that the same guy wrote the same books. Uh, what draws you to, to move uh, like, like a butterfly from different flowers to, to, to feed from diff these different nectars? Why? Like yeah. a butterfly. butterfly wings there, guy. Let's go. Take flight. <laughs> like a puny butterfly. Was that the word? Puny? Puny. <laughs> Petite, Petite butterfly. Fatigued butterfly. <laughs> Tired, dried out, petite butterfly. Okay, it's just, oh, I can't wait for this to be over. Um, in one way, I, I, I want the books to be as radically different as they can be mm -hmm. because it allows for the rest of my life to, to be incredibly stable. That, that each book has to be kind of a wild experiment so that the rest of my life stays really kind of boring and stable and, uh, and productive. Now, you wouldn't believe how boring my life is. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. You're right. <laughs> but, well, let's talk a little bit uh, about um, Webster Carlton Westward III. This is the man at the center of this novel, the, the only man in this novel, who comes into the life of uh, Kathy and Hazy. Uh, how do you, you create this interesting triangle as you created these characters? Talk about um, balancing them and keeping the plot going, using the, 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 the different character attributes you created with each of them. Oh. Boy, it, uh, it's, it's basically like a triangle. It's in minimalism, you know, ideally trying mm -hmm. to keep it to three characters. And, and Fight Club was a great example because I was able to keep it to ultimately two characters. <laughs> yeah. But 
if you can keep it to three characters, then you can develop tension and, and, uh, and sort of what they call a verticality, a philosophic, uh, psychological depth in the story much quicker. Um, it's no, no, surpri no uh, coincidence that this guy is named Webb, is it? Because right. Well, you know, Webster is, in, whenever I have a character, I always try to think of character names that can be broken down into at least three different versions. Mm -hmm. um, for example, um, in Knock Knock, the father is referred to either as uh, my old man or the man. The man's no Robin Williams, but I saw this movie about Robin Williams. So he's, he's my old man, he's the old man, he's the man, he's my dad, nobody wants to see their dad. Find several ways to refer to the same character, and so Webster is the Webster, he is the Webb, he is Carlton Webster, Westward III. Uh, it's a way of creating a sense of more characters out of a single character, and in one sense, referring to him as the Webb gives him an allegorical name, like Paige Marshall in Choke, mm -hmm. because Paige is kind of an overt reference to the coded security announcements that are a central metaphor in Choke. Uh, when they, where they say, so, they say uh, paging Dr. Flamingo because they can't say there's a big fire. So it's a thing that represents another thing. And so typically whenever I have a character, one of those alternate names or ways of referring to that character is an allegorical giveaway of who that character really is. You know, this book reads like an extended gossip column in, in some ways. Uh, so, talk about your research, reading the gossip. What kind of books did you read to prepare yourself for this book? I'm always looking for a nonfiction form mm -hmm. that I can tell a fictional story inside of, because a nonfictional form will lend gravity and credibility to even a really outlandish story, just really an over-the-top crazy story. And so, uh, gossip columns seemed just perfect for it. Um, like Sidney Skolsky's columns from Hollywood and Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper and, and uh, Walter Winchell. And also by borrowing the conventions of, those, of that form, it dictates my transitional devices and it's kind of the, the style of the voice is dictated by those columns. So the, the nonfiction form will dictate all those very mechanical things so you don't have to invent everything. Everything will refer back to the original non-fictional form. Um, and there's a lot of Walter Winchell stuff out there. There's a lot of uh, Preserved Luella Parsons stuff. I read a million movie star biographies. Uh, and because a lot of this was research done because I was stuck in the chemotherapy lounge while my mother was getting chemotherapy. And I'd sit there with a pile full of books and just read one movie star bio after another. You know, there, there's an immense, um, there's, there's a tension in this book between an immense sadness and, uh, uh, and also it's, it's very funny. Talk about creating that kind of, you know, that tension between the humor and, and, and the, the pathos, the pain.
Boy, that's a tough one. I'm trying to think about good anecdotes. Did you find yourself reading, laughing in the cancer ward? <laughs> no, no, but with my father's household, oh God, this is so awful. When we cleaned out my father's household, we would find personal items that just cracked us up. And so we would alternately go to laughing and weeping, my siblings and I. And this spring, when we finally resolved my mother's household, someone at one point found her partial denture, part, a kind of a partial upper bridge. And it was such a visceral, gruesome relic to find, such an intimate part of her that was still in the world. And so, of course, we had to put it in someone's coat pocket. <laughs> and my sister Heidi put on her coat and put her hand in her pocket and found this sort of sharp, chewy bridge, my mother's teeth biting her hand. And she screamed and we all laughed. And then everybody cried some more. And then somehow it ended up in my coat pocket. And so we would alternately have these hideous gags where my siblings would all sneak this into one another's belongings, hoping that someone would carry it off. And it was a way of, of doing kind of what I just did in Knock Knock, where you say something really awful, and then you say something kind of funny to mitigate that awfulness, and then you say something awful, and then you say something funny, and then you get to toward the end where you're just, it's just awfulness. So you kind of build people's tolerance for awfulness until that home stretch where you realize that the guy's guts are being pulled out by the swimming pool. <laughs> and it's too late for them to escape. <laughs> and the, the bridge went home in Heidi's purse and took her two weeks to find it. She found it at a 7-Eleven while she was getting changed. <laughs> Well, Chuck, now I have one more question for you. Uh, Lillian Hellman does some pretty incredible things in this book. Uh, and, and I'm wondering, in the afterlife, let's just say, for example, you end up in hell. <laughs> <laughs> let's just say. Let's just say. For the sake of argument. <laughs> and you're going to, you might meet Lillian Hellman there, given the veracity level of her biographies. What are you going to say to her? I think she'd probably be a lot less attached to earthly things at that point. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell a little anecdote that kind of would illustrate. Okay. And uh, it's, it's the cheese anecdote. So if you learn nothing else out of this, you're going to learn how to eat cheese in France. I got shipped over to do this uh, promotional tour the very first time I'd ever been to France. And I was in Paris. And I, there was a, a dinner in my honor in my editor's apartment. And it was all these French people, go figure, speaking French. Go figure. And getting fantastically drunk and smoking and smoking and smoking and smoking. And they were all arguing over who among them had actually gotten others addicted to heroin because they were also all heroin addicts. <laughs> and periodically people would go into the bathroom and seemingly shoot up. 
And I knew that I had to get up the next morning and do like 16 or 18 hours of really intense promotional work. And I just wanted to go back to the hotel and get some sleep. But I couldn't communicate that. I didn't want to be impolite. I was the guest of honor. And I just felt like that little dog in The Great Gatsby that's sitting there in the smoke-filled party until Tom breaks Myrtle's nose and has no idea what's going on around it. And finally, they bring out this plate of brie. And since I'm the guest of honor, they put it in front of me, this huge wedge of brie. And they say, you're the guest, you get the first bite. And I just lop off the little tip and I slap it on a cracker. And before I can even put it in my mouth, they're all screaming at me like fucking French parrots. They're all just <laughs> screaming. And they're, suddenly they all know English because they're all saying, stupid, greedy American, how typical, the stereotypical American, of course he does this. He's taking the best part of the brie. It's just like Americans, always hogging the very best. I have no idea what they're talking about. And they explained to me that when you eat brie, you're supposed to slice it in such a way that you take a tiny portion of the tip as well as the rind. So you're taking a portion of the best as well as the worst. And what I've done as an American is I've just gobbled down the only part worth eating. <laughs> and this goes on and on, so don't expect to talk for a while. <laughs> is Lillian going to get to talk? No. <laughs> She's gone. Finally, after this lecture on how to eat cheese in France, after an incredibly long airplane flight, I've had it. And I said, would someone please just take me back to my hotel? And this very high couple says, yeah, okay, sure. And I get in their tiny, tiny car, and we drive through the streets of Paris in the middle of the night, and they are so high. They're driving the wrong way down one-way streets. And they're stopping at green lights. And the light turns red and the light turns green, and we wait through several cycles of every light. And the traffic is sort of ebbing and honking around us, and they are so lost and so high, and I'm never gonna get back to my hotel. And finally, they, they speed up, and they screech to a halt. They bump up onto the curb, parked on the sidewalk at the base of the Eiffel Tower, and there are police right there. And they throw the doors open, and they jump out of the car, and they start screaming. And they're screaming, Chuck, run. You've got to run. We've got to run. We're in trouble. And they start running across the plaza. And I have no idea what to say or do. So I jump out, and I'm running after them. They've left the car running. The lights are on. The doors are open. And we're running under the Eiffel Tower in the middle of the night. And there's just a smattering of people. And suddenly, the police kind of take off to see what we're up to. And they're screaming, they're out ahead of me screaming, run Chuck, just run, we've got to run. <laughs> and we get to the very base of the Eiffel Tower and they scream, look up, look up, look up at the sky, come on Chuck, look up. And I look up, and when you're under the Eiffel Tower at night, it's all lit up. So it's like this big tunnel of light that recedes and tapers, seemingly into infinity. And as you look straight up, you're looking up at this kind of squared tunnel that goes up as far as you can see into the night and it's incredible it's so bright it's you know brighter than you could ever imagine and I'm standing looking straight up 
and they're screaming, look up, look up, look up. And suddenly, I go blind. Everything vanishes. Everything goes to complete, complete blackness. And the only thing you can hear is the collective gasp of the, the people in the plaza. Everyone, in this one long intake of breath, this huge gasp. And the whole world has gone to blackness, and there's no point of physical reference whatsoever. All of creation has vanished. And in that moment, losing all physical reference, vertigo hits me, and my knees buckle, and everyone kind of crumples to the concrete. And I find myself sort of sitting sprawled on the concrete, still looking up into this blackness, wondering what's happened. And my grandmother had died that weekend, and I was missing her funeral. And I hear her voice and she says, this is why we're alive. And I was just shocked. And it turns out that that whole evening, everyone was faking everything. They faked being high. They faked keeping me out too late. They faked enraging me with that whole cheese incident. <laughs> Because the whole evening was about getting me to the base of the Eiffel Tower at midnight. Because at midnight, the whole thing is turned off with one huge switch. The whole thing goes to complete blackout. And one of the coolest things you can do when you're in Paris is to be there at the moment the whole thing vanishes. Because it's as if the enormous illusion of physical reality disappears in that moment. But you still exist. The world is gone, but you're still there. And I like to think that, that when my life is over, I'll meet Lillian Hellman, if I meet Lillian Hellman. But I, I won't be Chuck Palahniuk anymore, and she won't be Lillian Hellman. And, but, you know, we can still have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeff. Now, oh, wow. yes. Rick is going to be the heavy and choose among you if anybody's got questions. And if you've got a question, a good question, <laughs> you get a turkey. So, questions. Questions. Uh, oh, my. Uh, you back there. Right there, you. You. To the microphone. I need to know, how do you know when a story is finished? How many versions do you write? How many people do you show it to? Do you only show it to Jerry Howard now? And you know, as a starting beginner, at what point do you realize you quit showing to people and it's finished? How do I know when a story is finished? The same thing goes with a book. Um, number one, I take it to workshop so that I can hear really spontaneously where the laughs are, if there are laughs, where they land. And I can get the spontaneous feedback of where people moan or where there's that emotional reaction to the story. And then I'll monkey with it again. And I might take it back to workshop two or three times to make sure that it's working as well as it can work. And then I might send it to Jerry. But Jerry is really, 
I don't really look to Jerry for, uh, for that kind of advice. Um, I look to Jerry for, you know, it's kind of our secret thing is Jerry's got asthma. And if Jerry has to take his inhaler out several times, <laughs> and his assistant will watch and call me and say, for knock-knock, he, he kept the inhaler out the entire time. And that's kind of how I gauge Jerry's reaction. <laughs> but I have monkeyed with the story and changed it a little bit every time I've read it on tour. And so it's not finished until it's published in Playboy. I will change parts of it. I'll tweak it until the moment you know, I have to surrender it. And then part of that process is also kind of uh, abandoning it because I'm more in love with other stories. I don't want to spend my entire life working on just one thing. So publication is really the, the death of a story. All right. Very good. Let's see. Um, right there, you. To the microphone, please. So when you're creating characters and kind of putting them in different scenarios, do you feel pain for them when they're going through a hard time? Like, what's your emotional connection to your characters? I hate my characters. You do? <laughs> no, you know, I, I really don't like to have an emotional connection to my characters. In fact, I kind of like to dislike my characters. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to think of a... I have to kind of be disgusted by my characters. The reason why I like Knock Knock is it makes me a little sick. And when I took Knock Knock to workshop, all my fellow writers said, okay, but you cannot use that line about dog shit. You can't use that joke. That is just too far. You can't do that. That is just too wrong. You can, no, don't do that. And so in a way, I have to. <laughs> well, not because of any kind of forbiddenness, but because I don't want to stay the same person. I want to kind of force myself to do things that I'm really uncomfortable with that I have, to be able to, I have to be changed by the creation of the story, by the presentation of a story. And if as I'm writing that story, I think there is no way I can read this in public and I hope my family never sees this, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a really good indicator that this is something worth working on, that this is gonna be a thing that really taps into some unresolved thing in my life and makes me feel a little sick and will help kind of resolve me and make me a stronger person, you know, if I see it all the way through. And you don't get that with characters that you really like. It's those people that really grate on your nerves, that really, really push your buttons, that really help you to change. And so I like to have characters that really push my buttons that I really would not like to know in real life, because those are the characters that are going to kind of challenge me. I think we have time for one more question. 
Let's see. Um, I'm looking at somebody right back there. You. You. Right. To the microphone, sir. Ma'am. Sorry. Start. <laughs> Where did, you, where did you get the idea for uh, all the paradoxes you had in like rant? I don't know. One more time. <laughs> the underlying paradoxes you had in rant. Like the reason why he's able to survive and his, all the weird things that happened to him. You know more about the book than I do. Yeah, but I can't ask your question for you. I need a clear <laughs> question. A clear question. Okay. Where did it come from? Where did you get the idea for including such a strange paradox in Rand? Or like, it's open to interpretation. <laughs> the, uh, the kind of underlining, and I think I'm, I, I'm guessing what you're referring to, is the idea that ultimately, at some point in your life, you realize that you are becoming your father, or you are becoming your mother. And it's not the most pleasant realization but it involves a certain amount of forgiveness that you, you realize that your formative time that you spent with your parents, for the most part, they were really young people and they didn't have a lot of skills and they didn't have a lot of resources. And those, those jokes from Knock Knock were jokes that my dad told me like in first grade. At the same time that in CCD we were being taught prayers and I knew that if I could remember the Apostles' Creed, the nuns would give me something and they'd be really happy and they wouldn't hit me. And if I could tell those jokes, even though I didn't understand them, they would make my father and my father's friends laugh. Okay, so this guy goes to a whorehouse and he says, I want a whore to eat out. I want to eat her out. So he gets his whore and he's eating her out. And he comes across a piece of potato. And so he eats it. And he's eating around, and he's eating around, he comes across a piece of carrot, so, so I figures, what the hell? So he eats it. He's eating around, and he comes across this piece of celery, and he looks up at her, and he says, are you sick or something? And she goes, no, but the last guy was. <laughs> and you're how old when you're getting this joke? I got this joke when I was six years old, and it made about as much sense as the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> Makes more sense now. <laughs> but, but as you recognize, you see yourself as your father, as you see yourself, as you see your father in the mirror when you're combing your hair, you cannot continue to hate and resent your parents because it, it really involves hating and resenting yourself as well. And you have to start to cut them some slack and have some mercy for who they were and the fact that they did their absolute best. And that's all that you can do is your absolute best. So in a way, the underlining sort of process in rant was recognizing and forgiving all those aspects of my father that I find so kind of embarrassing now. So but I'm just as dumb as he was. Chuck, I think we have another contest. Do we have another game? We have one more round. All right. Round three. Certainly not by me. 
I like to call it the suicide round. Okay, Rick, get rid of the hearts. Faster, Rick, faster. Okay. It's like that three little pigs story. Just this guy down here is amazing. So while we run out the clock with hearts, I want to thank you. I want to first thank Booksmith for putting this all together. And thank Rick. Rick. And the man, the man who taught me writing. There's a man named Tom Spanbauer who taught me writing. And Tom always says, the writers write because they were not invited to the party. So, I want to thank you for inviting me to the party. This is my last party. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you and good night.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.